0: and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. For I've heard it said, there is an art which in their piety shares with great
1: creating nature. Say that, beef! Yet nature is made better by no mean but nature makes that mean. So, over that art which you say adds to nature is an art which nature makes. You see, sweet maid, we marry a gentler scion to the wildest stock and make conceive a bark of baser kind by bud of nobler race. This is an art which does mend nature. Change it, rather, but the art itself is nature.
0: Hello, and welcome back to The Plays, The Thing. You have joined us for Act 4 of The Winter's Tale. Just now, you heard King Polixenes. He's back after being banished late in Act 1, and you're hearing him talk to Perdita. Perdita. And they are having a conversation about the relationship between nature and art and Emily. This is going to be, we're going to spend a lot of time on this today because it's so consequential within the play mm-hmm. and it's so consequential within Shakespeare's overall vision of the world.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It is very complicated to modern ears. Mm-hmm. We don't have much of a sophisticated view of nature. Mm-hmm. I think we think like nature, when when something something feels natural, it means something like, I feel like doing it and thus I'm going to do it or something mm-hmm. like that. We have, I think, a pretty impoverished view of kind of what is natural or what is nature, a lot more impoverished than the rena- like the the really kind of contemplative renaissance thinkers mm-hmm. and certainly more almost like infantile compared to shakespeare mm-hmm. and within this conversation we're going to also talk about the pastoral mm-hmm. um because we're making this big shift aren't mm-hmm. we between yeah. from sicilia mm-hmm. which the first two and a half acts of the play happen in sicilia in the um Territory of Leontes, mm-hmm. this king who's gone crazy, and now we're shifting into a whole other world, Bohemia. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you in just a second about past the what the pastoral is, but let, let's just real quickly talk about what we cover in the the plot during this act. It is a long act, isn't it? It
2: sure is. And as we pointed out, unlike other act fours, it's huge. a lot of yeah,
0: right. A lot of other Act fours are like, "Hey, we're ready for Act five. now. Yep. we've got to build a couple of bridges between you know the crises of Act yep. three and the solutions of Act Five. We're going to gloss over Act Four. It gets cut all the time. Hamlet and Hamlet, it's almost always significantly cut. Mm-hmm. But here you cannot man, do that
2: you cannot do You that. cannot
0: do it. It's, it's such a it's, a it's a long act, and so much new and fertile ground mm-hmm. is open up within mm-hmm. this play okay let's talk about that plot and then i'm going to ask you about what a pastoral is because it's sort of an, a genre it is. that shakespeare is exploring in this act but first let's do the plot <laughs> the plot begins with an appearance of a brand new character
2: Father time time shows up.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And he invites us to basically step over 16 years (laughs) from the end of act three. He asks us to go forward 16 years. So if you remember at the end of act three, a baby is basically placed in Bohemia. This baby is the child of Leontes and Hermione. The child has been rejected as basically a bastard child by Leontes. Hermione has died, we think. <laughs> um, and Leontes is one of his best men, takes the baby and leaves it. Okay, So mm-hmm. so now Father Time appears and, he's, and Father Time says, we're going to step forward 16 years from the time of the abandonment of this baby in Bohemia. Mm-hmm. Um, so we show up and we are with camillo and polixenes again camillo and polixenes basically ran for their lives when leontes started losing his mind um camillo asks polixenes hey can i go home now it's been 16 years we hear that leontes is kind of repentant now and polixenes is like no i need you to help me because my son is getting to be a problem okay so Mm -hmm. In act one, Polixenes, the king of Bohemia, you know, he's talked about his son. You know, his son is his delight. But now his son is older, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old. And he is spending a lot of time, is Polixenes' son, with some... Polixenes thinks they're people of ill repute. They're not. They're just kind of
2: country Bohemians.
0: People. What's the right way to describe them, Emily? They're
2: country people.
0: They're country people. He's
2: hanging out with the Hicks.
0: Yeah. He's hanging out with the Hicks Mm -hmm. and he has fallen in love with a girl who Mm -hmm. belongs to this tribe of Hicks. And, you know, (laughs) Polixenes is like, I'm not going to have that. I'm not going to have that. Mm -hmm. But, dear listener, that girl is the abandoned child mm-hmm. of Leontes and Hermione. Mm-hmm. Her name is Perdita. So we're going to meet her in this act. And it's just a great, great reversal of fortune. It's so great. <laughs> but Polixenes doesn't know this and he can't stand this girl. He just absolutely cannot stand this girl. Okay. Um, so Polixenes shows up in disguise for a huge feast where his son, Florizel, and the girl, Perdita, are madly in love in the middle of this huge party like a sheep shearing feast mm-hmm. they declare their love for each other and they say it's time for us to get married polixenes steps in and he's like Uh-uh-uh-uh. haven't you talked you know young man haven't you talked to your son about this and his son kind of blows him off come on i i'm, I'm in not love talking with to this my girl. father i'm not talking to my father about this and polixenes is irate Let's pause there because I have some audio that I would like to play a little bit later about that moment mm-hmm. when polyxenes kind of unmasks and what he says to his son. Let's talk about that in a little bit.
1: Kay.
0: Emily, mm-hmm. we have entered a whole, not only a new land, mm-hmm. which is Bohemia,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but we've also entered like a new genre, mm-hmm. haven't we? Mm-hmm. The genre of the pastoral. What mm-hmm. can you tell us about the pastoral?
2: Well, the pastoral goes back long, 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 long. It goes back to ancient Rome and really the Augustan age poets, Virgil, Tibullus, And we know from Virgil's eclogues um, that he is hearkening back. He's asking his readers to hearken back to the golden age, the golden age where the lamb laid down with the lion, where the earth gave of its own where um, nature was in harmony with humanity and the romans believed that you know history had been a a falling away from that but they had this in their past and um virgil's fourth eclogue the famous one where he says a boy shall come and the early church fathers believed virgil had read isaiah right 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 um because because it is a it's a close hearkening to isaiah 11 right where the mm-hmm. lamb will lay down with line once again this image of nature as being in harmony with humanity humanity is not um tilling the soil the earth is giving of its own so it goes back i mean the um augustine age poet to he has wendell berry's got nothing on Tabolus. bolus is <laughs> <laughs> sounds like wendell berry of the first century and we're thinking rome as like this horrible city and he is saying oh give me the comforts of the country give Mm. me the comforts of the country Mm. so i mean the the pastoral then shows up this escape to the country right what does the country afford the country affords an antidote to the court right? It's the place outside of the artificiality of the court. What else does it afford? It affords refreshment. It affords um, an idyllic callback to the golden age, which we're always trying to get back to. Um, And so we can see this then throughout um, the development of Western literature, and particularly it's, prevalent in the 16th century when Shakespeare's writing the Italians are writing pastoral interludes and mm. um it's lo- it's noticed as the place for experimentation so if we're thinking of aristotelian um tragedy and comedy he says there has to be a unity right yeah and we know that like this play is not giving us a unity but right, that the pastoral was a place for tragedy and comedy to coexist mm. um, and it was a place of experimentation so it's it's the um, it's a fertile ground for playwrights to try out different things. And you can see a lot of, if you think about As You Like It, As You Like It's another example of the pastoral yes. in Shakespeare. Yes. And we have the court country um, dichotomy. We have art and nature dichotomy mm-hmm. there. We mm-hmm. have nurture and nature dichotomy there. Mm-hmm. Are um, the royals, are they innately elevated or is it just their nurture that makes them right elevated
0: right and and that audio i'm just going to jump in here for a second that audio that we played at the very top of the show is this little kind of i guess you would call it a debate between polixenes you know the king polixenes you know he's masked he's hidden he shows up and he gives this little lecture to perdita who he doesn't know is of royal stock. He just thinks she's like exactly. one of the wild ones. Exactly, And he is telling her about, hey, this is what great gardeners do. Mm-hmm. They take wild plants mm-hmm. and they can join them mm-hmm. to kind of like nobler plants. Mm-hmm. And together it improves the stock of this kind of like lower wild weed plant. And it's the irony would not be missed on Shakespeare's listeners.
2: Exactly. Because he's
0: making an argument to Perdita thinking she's low and wild and, you know, untamed, not knowing who she really is. He's making a case to her and then turnabout, mm-hmm. he rejects her exactly. for being wild. Yeah, exactly. and it's interesting, I think, and you and I might not agree on this, I think, Perdita, I think Perdita and he are arguing and he ultimately refuses to kind of take his
2: own he t- advice. Exactly. But you can also say that they're actually not arguing because she is not of the lower stock.
0: Right. Yeah, right? that's right. That's right. I mean, that's yeah. one
2: of those interests. that's one of the things about this act especially that's very mm-hmm. different than even his earlier as you like it so there's mm. the same discussion and as you like it with oliver and orlando do you remember that discussion
0: i don't know
2: well just because oliver prevents orlando from being schooled as a gentleman's son remember and orlando oh, yes yes yes
0: yes oliver's his brother exactly yeah right
2: and um, there's the same thing that Orlando bemoans his lack of um, learning, and yet mm-hmm. his own nature sort of shines forth. Hey, yeah. we're going to get it in this act again with the shepherd yes. who becomes a gentleman by the end.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: Right? I mean, so this yeah. um, this is another thing that the pastoral affords. There is an egalitarianism within the pastoral setting. Everybody's on equal footing. In the in mm-hmm. the um, pastoral setting, right? there's not um, the rules of the court do not apply there.
0: Mm. Yeah.
2: you know so this this world of um, sort of well harmony with nature um, outside of time, yeah. um, a, a freedom and also it is the pastoral is also very deeply connected to love. Like Tobias right? in his um, first century poems is Rus in Urbe, the rustic in the city. But he's talking about his love for the, you know, um, wholesome country girl. I mean, yeah. this is this is like this is such a long tradition in, that Shakespeare is entering. Absolutely. Into, but in a really different I, I'm, way.
0: I'm thinking about um, the second king of Rome way back in the day. So the first king of Rome traditionally is Romulus. Romulus mm-hmm. who killed his brother with a stone during the building of the city. The
2: walls.
0: The second king,
2: Tarquinius, is
0: kind of called Numa Pompilius, right?
2: Oh, you're right, Numa Pompilius. Tarquinius is the last one. Yeah, Tarquinius you're right. is the last Pneuma one. Pompilius. He is like
0: when everything is gone right. He's wrong and despotic, right? <laughs> yes. But Numa Pompilius is this great and revered yes. king. And yes. where do they find Numa Pompilius? I, if, if I recall correctly, kind of like the leadership of Rome goes to him and where do they find him? Tilling his fields. Yes, right? this, is right? deep within, his field.
2: this is deep within Western culture. There's this um, classicist who I have really like. Her book is called The Epic City. And she says that the Romans uh, retained a very different understanding of nature than did the Greeks. And actually another historian says the same thing. And a lot of this is hearkening back to that, that they did long for this um, unity with nature, right? They longed for a unity with nature, which we can see so clearly in this act. I think you were thinking about um, art and nature yourself in regards to this.
0: I was, I want to say one other thing. You mentioned Virgil. Sometimes Emily, because you and I have been friends for so long. And because we, we are kind of like trafficking in these books, it might be good for us to go to say, like, remember what, who Virgil was. So you mentioned the Mm ecologues, the Eclogues are a little bit, the ecologues are still kind of famous among Christians who have like a strong sense of their own history. um, Because of what you mentioned in the fourth ecologue, there seems to be this real clear parallel between um, this child leading Rome
1: mm-hmm.
0: kind of coming from a nat- natural state mm-hmm. and Isaiah's prediction of the coming Messiah when a child will mm-hmm. lead them. Mm-hmm. But Virgil's more like famous work is not the ecologs, It's True. the Aeneid. True. And in the Aeneid, so think um, listeners, if you're not familiar with the Aeneid, think of the Aeneid as sort of like, the roman version of homer's two classics the iliad and the odyssey mashed together into one he virgil very much kind of like takes i don't know you would he's call inspired. it like, like plot lines yeah he's very inspired by, by homer homer's iliad is like the book of war mm-hmm. and maybe you could say homer's uh, odyssey is the book of homecoming mm-hmm. well What Virgil does is he does a homecoming story about Aeneas, famous warrior from Rome, returning from Troy back to, he wants to go back home. He can't go back home. So he ends up basically founding the city of Rome. So the first half of the book is kind of like him finding a new home with his men. Second half of the book is like the Iliad, Mm -hmm. war with the local tribes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's Virgil. And this book was written during the time of Caesar Augustus. In fact, there's a story we're really going down the rabbit hole now, um, (laughs) Emily, but I think it's, I think it's fun. Um, There's a story of Virgil reading parts of his book in which he gives this kind of prophecy um, and included in the prophecy is the story of Caesar Augustus's son, dying which had already happened mm-hmm. and the story is caesar augustus's wife hears this and begins crying she's so moved remembering the loss of her son anyway um in the aeneid now i'm getting back to the point of the pastoral there's this little section i wish i could find i could find it if i had time where they celebrate um the time when Saturn ruled the, yes. this particular tribe. You yes. remember what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Because and it's, it's also, this
0: kind of, it's a golden age. It is, it's this an is age, the golden age law. Yes. Um, And it's only later when the population kind of gets more dense, that law is forced to kind of like, that, that people are forced to take on right law right. and the adherence of law rather than Merely kind of like negotiating relations neighbor to neighbor.
2: Right. And that's that declension from the golden age. And the pastoral is a um, longing to return to that. Right. And it it winds its way through Western culture from this, from this time. Yeah. I mean, it's um, for the Romans. um, The past was also a vision of the future. Right? Because they were trying. Yeah. They, and I mean, honestly, within Christian belief, it's the same, right? We come from a garden and we end right. in a garden. Right. And that, this is what the pastoral is really playing with. But it's also, yeah, I mean, I think this is all part of it. One of the interesting things about the pastoral that I had forgotten that I was reminded of is that Sicily, Sicilia, is often the site of pastoral um, locality. And it's so interesting here that Shakespeare puts Leontes in Sicilia, but it's Bohemia that is the place of the pastoral. Isn't that fascinating? So Sicilia was the the green world for Athens and Rome. And, you know, that was outside. So it's really it's I don't think that's an accident. I think he's right determinedly yeah. playing He's deliberately on
0: that. kind of winking at us, yes. or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That you know, even so, Cecilia
2: can fall from its golden age.
0: Right. Yeah. Even Cecilia can. Um, so here we are in Bohemia, and you and I have been talking about this production that we watched on YouTube. If you guys are listening along and you want to be exposed to Winter's Tale, please watch the Royal Shakespeare Academy's full rendition starring Anthony Mm -hmm. Schur because they do such a great job across the board and especially Mm -hmm. in this act. In this Mm -hmm. act, if everything in the first three acts was formal, everything is buttoned up, the pillars Mm -hmm. in the palace are tall and imposing... And Mm -hmm. now beginning in act four, it is like hay bales and Mm -hmm. country music Mm -hmm. and flag waving Mm -hmm. and dancing and energy. And it's so much fun. And it's also, you can see it through the eyes of royalty because we've been with royalty for the first three acts. You can see through the eyes of royalty and look at this and think, this is not fun, This is chaos. (laughs) This is right. This is like, like immorality and licentiousness. That's what it might appear like if you're used to that kind of, kind of.
2: It's Dionysian, Yeah, it's 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 Dionysian. Dionysian. That's a
0: perfect way of describing it. It's yeah. a perfect way of describing it.
2: Um, one of the other aspects of the pastoral too is a genre mixing and we see that so clearly here. bringing in music, bringing in dance, bringing in um, other things into a drama. Right. So it's yes, right. Um, and the pastoral in music has a very long and storied past as well. And I thought that production did a great job. Right. It's the um in music, we hear it. And I'm sure we would hear it if we were to um ha- if we were to have seen a stage production with all of Itolychus's little folk songs there.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. There
2: are certain meters that are known to be more pastoral. For instance. Oh, really? Do you know? Do you know about this? Should we go into no, this? No, I don't. Not at all. But like a jig is in six-eight time, right? So it's one two three four five six, one two three four five six. So you hear two big beats, but then you hear yeah. these underlying beats because it's yeah. a dance rhythm. And so um, I'm sure if we had heard a staging of the play in Shakespeare's time, yeah, the music would be recognizably folk of low lower origin, right? Right. Of, of right. these different um, time signatures that signaled we're in a different feel right now. We're not doing the dances of the court. The minuet
0: is not the Sarah Those
2: would, those would have been the dances, these stately courtly dances. Nope. We're in the one, two, three, four, five, six, right? So
0: I love this. This is where my lack of training in music, um, really needs education and here you are this is, i love it i love it so
2: much and we i mean you can feel, you feel that rhythm and we would feel it if we were to hear his songs that's one thing i have to say that i did not enjoy in the um royal shakespeare i did not enjoy autolycus and i did not enjoy his songs because i don't okay. think they gave you that feel because he's kind he's weird.
0: Italicus. he's weird he is he's he's weird and like the first time we see him he's under the sheets with yeah the staging in that production yeah 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 um but I think the, the character as Shakespeare wrote him is really interesting it is how would you describe him kind of like on the page we're not talking about the production that we love so much right how would you describe him on the page
2: well i think that in this world of the pastoral right of the um, harmony with nature of people um um enjoying the comforts of life without artificiality of the court like authenticity over artificiality he is i think like a polluting vision of the city don't you think he's he's a swindler. He comes from the city and he is sort of corrupting this beautiful uh-huh. world.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs>
2: right? <Yeah. laughs> and so I mean and also with our shepherd and shepherd's son, we have slightly two different visions of the the country folk. So the shepherd mm. which we already talked about in the last act comes across as like the fruit of the earth, you know, good country yeah. people. Like he is yeah. just, he's wise. He's not. He's foolish. honest. Yeah. All of he's these. He's
0: grateful. Exactly. This is our lucky day boy. Yeah.
2: All these good things. And then his son comes across as a real bumpkin and naive yeah. and um, uncultured and uncultured in the sense of um, not having sort of native virtue. And so Atollicus preys on the shepherd's son, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe it's it's like the, the dark side of naivete or whatever. Right. Mm, He's like the shepherd's son is um, well, and he's not intelligent. Like we, we, He's gullible.
0: And the scene that the Royal Shakespeare um, company stages, the meeting between the shepherd's son and autolycus a t- that is a brilliant scene. It is. Like you might not, it like, is. it's a, it is. so I I encourage you guys to go watch it. It happens almost in the exact middle of the recording. Autolycus meets this kind of mumbling shepherd's son and he steals everything that he has off the poor guy in about a 60 second period. And it is absolutely, it's clowning work at its It is. Absolute best.
2: I'm in agreement with you on that. It's
0: so good. It's worth watching it. And your kids would love it. Your kids would love it. It's just a moment of like staging genius. It is. It's right after this, that we arrive at this huge sheep shearing festival with, you know, all the people from the town in Bohemia. And this is what Polixenes comes to observe. And Emily, I want to go back to this. I kind of want to set the stage a little bit for this audio that we've already played. Mm -hmm. I'm going to want to play it again in just a second, but I first want to set the scene and let our listeners hear that audio again with a little bit of a background in what Shakespeare thinks about nature. So Shakespeare is notoriously... I don't know what the right word is. Slippery, maybe Um, he is hard to pin down because he gives such a strong voice to characters that he loves and characters that he hates Mm -hmm. to characters that he respects and characters that he despises that sometimes you think, is there really a man, a playwright with convictions Mm -hmm. in there somewhere, Mm -hmm. or is he just merely an entertainer? And I think there is a man of convictions in here. And I think his strongest convictions, because it shows up all over the place is his vision of nature Mm -hmm. and what nature is. So, um, I'm going to just read a long quote. This is from an old essay by Edgar C. Knowlton K N O W L T O N called The Goddess Nature in Early Periods is written in 1920. And Knowlton says, this is kind of a summary of what Shakespeare's vision of nature would be. So here it is quote, God is good. And so is nature, the divine agent, his agent, man must follow the law of nature, which is the same as the law of reason. This principle postulates the existence of free will, it urges the idea of a golden mean, which is we'd call it something like temperance. And it involves discipline, not for its own sake, but for the sake of a higher purpose. The purpose of art is to know nature and to follow her, to learn her principles, to practice them, and not to eliminate feeling. And this view is nothing incompatible with experiencing a sense that the innocent suffer and that life is stern and mysterious. Mm-hmm. We could do a 15 hour podcast mm-hmm. on Shakespeare's view of art and nature. Mm-hmm. But I think for now um, we've got just like a little taste. Nature is good. And we ought to try in some ways to emulate kind of like the natural courses of nature so if you remember and what is the purpose of art if you remember from um hamlet hamlet Mm. says it's in essence to hold up a mirror to nature Mm -hmm. it's to kind of show us maybe in a condensed way what nature is Mm -hmm. how we ought to live as human beings
2: which is an agreement with aristotle right art imitates nature so it's it's an agreement with that yes
0: so now Polixenes at this party, disguised, no one knows that he's nobility. Um, Perdita certainly doesn't know he's nobility. Not even his son knows that he is, you know, the King Polixenes come to kind of like reign on their parade. Um, and Perdita, this kind of, um, we don't know that she's noble, kind of flower girl, gets a lecture from Polixenes. I just want to hear the audio again that we heard at the top of the show, and I want our audience to think about it like, what is Polixenes trying to say in this scene? For I've heard it said, there is an art which in their piedness shares with great creating nature.
1: Say that be, yet nature is made better by no mean. But nature makes that mean. So. Over that art which you say adds to nature is an art which nature makes. You see, sweet maid, we marry a gentler scion to the wildest stock and make conceive a bark of baser kind by bud of nobler race. This is an art which does mend nature, change it rather, but the art itself is nature.
0: So those last lines from Polixenes. You see, sweet maid, we marry, like we join, a gentler scion to the wildest stock. And here he's thinking she's the wildest stock. Yeah, or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's clearly like demonstrating the kind of behavior that would say that she's the wildest stock, and make conceive a bark of baser kind by bud of nobler race. Mm-hmm. This is an art which does mend nature, change it rather. But the art itself is nature.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So help us, Emily. Help us understand what it. What is Polixenes? What is Polixenes saying here?
2: Well, it's so funny because he should take his own advice because later on he completely abandons it. What he applies to plants, he does not think applies in the world right. of men. Right.
0: Right. <laughs> right. Because his son is. <laughs> I, 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 he clearly believes that his son is a bud of nobler race. exactly,
2: And, and that she is should a should wilder have no, stock. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and, and if it works in the, gar, the garden, in the garden world, to marry one to the other, yeah. thus kind of like elevating both, he should be down with Perdita, but he he's sure not. Should.
2: He sure should. Um, I think one of the important things that you read in the earlier quote from our Shakespeare scholar is yeah. that um, God is good and nature is too. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that that speaks to something that we what we talked about in earlier acts as well, that nature is always revealing, um, it's revealing an inner reality, right? There's a harmony. Shakespeare sees a harmony in the world yeah. of nature. Don't you think? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And oh, this, absolutely.
2: And this speech of Polixenes, um, where he is trying to say, Adds to nature is an art that nature makes. I mean, it's a little bit it's slightly a tautology, isn't it? Mm. which one comes first? Is it nature or art? He says it, it do you know what I'm saying? You see so over that arch, which he, art, which you say adds to nature, is an art that nature makes
0: oh oh oh, oh yeah, earlier yeah. on, yeah how do you think? I how I read that yes. I read that is, nature can be improved by art, yet art must function in accordance with nature.
2: Right. So yeah,
0: yeah, it's self-referential in a way. Yes. Yeah.
2: And that it. That's should, what
0: you're saying. Like it's a tautology. Yeah. It's it's self-referential. Yes. And, it's gonna, and it circles back on itself. It circles
2: back on itself. Um, but it is one of the funny things here is that if he is making this argument, and I do think you're right. I mean, he is. Calling into question uh, Polixenes' anger later. I mean, who is the gentleman? Who is the one of nobler stock, right? right? right. Is it Polixenes who acts like a boar or is it the shepherd who actually right. sees the value of each person? But the thing mm-hmm. that's interesting is he doesn't actually have an objective correlative because Perdita is of nobler stock. So it right. is. It's funny.
0: Um this little scene is a moment where you know i'm I'm always advocating go see a play go see a play and i think what the cast did with this little scene Mm -hmm. was wonderful because polixenes
2: it was a red flower right yes
0: and he and he plucks a white flower from perdita's basket he cuts off one of the flower stems and conjoins it to another to the other cut flower Mm -hmm. stem and he kind of demonstrates this is what we do in gardening. Yes. We take the wild flower yes. and we marry it to the kind of more noble flower yes. and both flourish because yes. of it. Early yeah. genetic
2: theory, right?
0: Yeah, Early that's genetic right. theory. Early genetic theory. <laughs> that's <it's>, right.
2: <laughs> he doesn't know it, but it's like showing um, the mixing of these genes strengthens the plant. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it is, it's not working against nature. It's working with it, but in sympathy. Um, that's and right. Um, So maybe that, does that get to your view of, or what you're bringing out of Shakespeare's view of nature? Yes. There's a sympathy with it.
0: There is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Emily, the sad part about this conversation, which begins with such hope, is that it goes really poorly after this. It
2: sure does. Um,
0: Right. Because this is where. Florizel, who is the son of Polixenes comes forward and he is like, man, I am so in love with Perdita. Why are we waiting? Let's just get married. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And
0: Polixenes sees this. Of course, he thinks that his son is about to get mixed up in the affairs of this low born woman. Mm -hmm. He cannot have this happen. Mm -hmm. So I want to hear this breakup scene Mm -hmm. or this this kind of like crisis scene um because it's going to set the stage for the rest of the play and things that need to be resolved in act five in addition to the other things that need to be resolved from the first three acts so Mm -hmm. let's listen here this is a conversation between polixenes and florizel you'll kind of know perdita's in the background here and polixenes is telling his son hey haven't you talked to your dad about this yet? And Flor- is like, I don't need to talk to him about it. So let's listen.
1: This hand, as soft as dove's down and as white. Oh, what follows this? How prettily the young swain seems to wash the hand was fair before. I'll put you out. But to your protestations, let me hear what you profess. Do. Well, I'm be witness to it. And This my neighbor too. Uh, he and more than he and men, the earth, the heavens and all. Were I crowned the most imperial monarch, I would not prize it without her love. Fairly offered. This shows a sound affection. But my daughter, say you the like to him. I cannot speak so well. Nothing so well known nor mean better. By the
0: pattern of mine own thoughts, I cut out the purity of his.
1: Take hands, a bargain! <laughs> and friends known. you shall bear witness to it. I give my daughter to him, and will make her portion equal his. <laughs> oh, that must be in the virtue of your daughter, one being dead. I shall have more than you can dream of yet. <laughs> but enough then for your wonder. But come on, contract us for these witnesses. Come, your hand, and daughter, yours. Stop, swain! A while, I beseech you. Have you a father? I have, but what of him? Knows he of this? He neither does nor shall. Methinks a father is at the nuptial of his son, a guest that best becomes the table. Pray you once more, is not your father grown incapable of reasonable affairs? Is he not stupid with age and altering rooms? Can he speak here, no man for man? dispute his own estate. Lies he not and again does nothing but what he did being child. No, good sir. He has his health and ampler strength indeed than many of his age. By my white beard you offer him, if this be so, a wrong, something unfilial. The father, all whose joy is nothing else but fair posterity, should hold some counsel in such a business. I yield all this. But for some other reasons, my grave, sir, which tis not fit you know, I not acquaint my father of this business. Let him know it. He shall not. Prithee, let him. No, out. he must not. Oh, let him, my son. Yeah, oh. He shall not need to grieve at knowing of thy choice. Come, come, he must not. Mark our contract. Mark your divorce, young sir, whom son I dare not call.
2: Um, Let's talk about um, Perdita and who she is because we we haven't really done that yet.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, Okay, Logan, here we go in three, two, one. There we have Polixenes kind of discovering himself to Florizel and um, to Perdita in front of everybody right when they think, they're about to contract in marriage florizel mark our contract polixenes mark your divorce young mm-hmm. sir whom son i dare not call thou art too base to be acknowledged mm-hmm. and the whole it is a nightmare it's this beautiful love story that's beginning to blossom mm-hmm. and polixenes steps in and in a way we kind of get echoes of leontes all Completely. over again right
2: Completely. right yes
0: It's like, have you learned nothing? 16 years of kind of like suffering of this, this man's jealous rage. And now you do the same thing on your son,
2: you know? Yes.
0: So we have now two ruptures in the play. The first is of course, between Hermione and Leontes in Sicilia. The second one is between Polixenes and florizel mm-hmm. and perdita he says I, I, I want to talk about perdita in a moment but he has these these terrible wonderful lines does polixenes he kind of turns his attention on her and he mm-hmm. says i'll have thy beauty scratch with briars and made more homely than thy state
2: <laughs> so <You> awful <laughs> so it's awful, awful.
0: um <sighs> can i i i think i told the story did I tell the story in Act One about when I played the scene about the young man, the actor who played Florizel? Did it, I
2: tell it? Did, did you tell? I you told me, but I don't remember if it was on the air.
0: I'm just going to tell it again. Tell it again. I, yeah, <laughs> listeners, bear with me. It's just a fun story to tell. Um, the guy who was playing florizel my son in our Mm -hmm. production this is several years ago was just this wonderful just a wonderful delightful guy and it's i let him have it Mm -hmm. with like every bit of anger that i can have that i that i have And our staging has me take i'm i have kind of a shepherd's crook in my hand Mm -hmm. you know as part of my disguise and when i kind of discover myself i take off my my beard and reveal myself to be the father of florizel he kind of falls back and he's looking up at me from one knee and i take the shepherd's crook and i put it down on his chin and like lift it up (laughs) to make sure he's listening to the lecture like you better hear this (laughs) and it's it's just a it's a really angry angry scene Mm -hmm. and so and then i say you know tell Perdita. I'll have thy beauty scratched with briars made mm. more homely than thy state. So then I walk off state, follow me to the judge mm-hmm. or I can't remember what the, to the, right court. It to the court, yeah. follow me to the court. So I kind of wait, I would wait off stage after this eruption and I would wait for Andrew to come off stage. Andrew, the guy who's playing my son and I'll wait for him. And we would just kind of hug it out I'd be like, I didn't mean yeah. any of that mister yeah. <laughs> we would do it every night we would do it every night it was this sweet little moment that we would have backstage um, i still love you i still love you i didn't mean anything about what i just said i meant, i only meant it in the moment yeah. i only meant it in the moment um, let's talk about Perdita. what do we let's do. what do we see about her in, in this act, this is our first time seeing her. It Aside is. from her, as just an infant, you know, this yeah. is our first time seeing her. What do we know about her? What's her impression?
2: Well, I mean, the thing that's also funny, Polixenes has so many warnings, just as Leontes had, right? Um, yeah. At the start of the scene, and I guess he's not here yet for this, but Florizel at the start of scene four says, these, your unusual weeds to each part of you does give a life. No shepherdess." But Flora, peering in April's front, this year sheep sharing is as a meeting of the petty gods, and you, the queen on it. So that's oh. Florizel's greeting to her. So she's yeah. she's Flora, the goddess of flowers, right? This isn't a sheep sharing; it's a meeting of petty gods, and she's the queen. And then um, she displays so much knowing. Mm gosh, we just love this play because of these women, right? We have three examples of brilliant women who all know in their own way, but in different ways, because she is the one all through the, even the start of it, who is saying to Florizel, she doesn't know he's the prince, but she knows he's high born. And she says, this isn't going to work. Like you can't deny who I am, right? She's the knowing one. Yep. Um, But nonetheless, she's it as a queen. And then her, Father, the shepherd, says the same thing. He says, look, your mother's no longer here. You're the hostess of this feast. You are Mm. the hostess of this feast. You come and present yourself, right? So once again, she's being elevated. And then even Polixenes himself, when he's still in disguise, um, says to Camillo, and you think, oh, he's going to get it, he says, This is the prettiest lowborn lass that ever ran on the Greensward. Mm. Nothing she does or seems, but smacks of something greater than herself. Too noble for the place. Right? So even he, we get all of these um, hints as to who Perdita really is. We get hints because it's being said. I mean, she's being held up as a queen. She's the hostess. And then we skipped over it. Should we go back to it? We skipped over her dialogue of the flowers. Because I think it's another indication of his view of nature. Yeah. Don't you? Yeah. So, and also this um, knowing, this knowing of Perdita that she displays. Um, so, this is back earlier. Um, Camillo and Polixenes show up, and as the hostess of the feast, she gives them flowers to welcome them in, right? And she gives mm. them rue and rosemary for winter. So she has this knowing why? Because these are old men and they're in the winter of their life. Yeah. Right. And yeah. why are they winter? Because they're evergreens. Rosemary is an evergreen. And so mm. is rue, right? So they stay through yeah. the winter. Yeah. So she's picking something suitable to them. And uh, she makes sort of jokes to them. Right. And then we we skipped the beginning part of um, the speech that she has with Polixenes, um, because she says, here are some carnations and gillyflowers, flowers, which are called nature's bastards.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. the gillyflower
2: flower is really uh, it's a dianthus. It's a carnation. And I think they're called nature's bastards because even now they intermix freely. And so you get, you can get all sorts of crossbreeding out of them. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, And that's when Polixenes then says, don't call them nature's bastards. Like they're they're better.
0: Yeah. He makes a defense in favor of mixing kind of like
2: higher and lower. He's
0: just so, and then it turns around and like decries it when it's actually happening to his son.
2: Yes. Um, And then she gives, um, Oh, she gives flowers of middle summer for those to men of middle age, right? The lavenders, mm. the mints, the savory, mm. the marjoram, the marigolds, which follows the sun. It's heliotropic. Did you know that?
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah,
2: it is. Um. So there is this knowing that she provides, yeah, and so. Um,
0: and she's tied to nature. She, she is exactly. She's demonstrating exactly. this deep knowledge and and the kind of like. Um, symmetrical relationship
2: exactly between
0: flowers and people this one is like you because of the age you are yeah
2: exactly um and she uh let's see then she gives to florizel and then she gives to the shepherdesses right she gives to the shepherdesses daffodils that come before the swallow dares and take the winds of march with beauty because they're in their Mm. young and they're in their young years i love it so much i love all of this and i think it's um Harkens exactly to what you were talking about with Shakespeare's view of nature. Otherwise we see what do we like what is this digression about? I think it's showing Perdita's wisdom. I think there's a lot she yeah. has a knowing. She sees things. She sees yeah. more than anybody else sees, right? right. She right. sees Florizel, she says she says to him, "Uh I hope your father doesn't come by when this happens," right? And who should wa- be in trouble? <laughs> who should walk by? But his father. Yeah. Um You know, she
0: reminds me a little bit of Juliet, ah, in that she's ahead of her years. Yes. But Juliet is kind of willing to defy her parents and Romeo's parents. Yes. Or, or at least just kind of like try to get away with it, I guess. Yes. Whereas it does seem like Perdita, and okay, and I wonder if part of it is Perdita has no power. She doesn't believe herself to be of noble stock. Whereas Juliet, her father's the it's, head of the house.
2: I think that that's very true right? because what is going to happen to her, which is what she says, I'm going to be cast out. Like you can right. say all you want to go against the um, constructs of society, but I'm yeah. going to be the one that suffers. Right. Which she's right. right. And Polixenes um confirms that when he says to yep. her, <laughs> she recognizes that she is in a place of um, vulnerability.
0: Yes. She's wise enough to see that. And I actually think that, that Juliet is wise enough to see she, of course, is vulnerable because of her age and because she's married, she marries Romeo. But I think Juliet is wise enough to think like, I've got some kind of heft exactly. on my side. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Think and so. Perdita just doesn't. And, until... and she
2: knows, right? She knows.
0: Yeah. Yeah. She knows.
2: Um, when, after he says this, it's one of my favorite lines in the whole play. So, mm. Polixenes, you know, says, come to the court. He, he tells the shepherd who has been nothing but noble. You, thou churl, for this time, though full of our displeasure, yet we free thee from the dead blow of it, <laughs> right? So, he's yeah. like basically saying, I was, I can kill you, but I guess I won't. And he marches off. And then Perdita says, even here undone. I was not much afeared. for once or twice. I was about to speak and tell him plainly the self same sun that shines upon his court hides, not his visage from our cottage, but looks on alike, mm. you know, like, look, the sun, you're not the only one that gets the sun to shine. We're all the same here. <laughs> I'm uh-huh, a human, uh-huh. too, right? Like, yeah. it's the same sun. Don't think you're better than me. You're not better than me. I loved it. Like, yeah. The the woman in the um Shakespeare production does it very i because it's ironic, right? She's being ironic and she's just such a smart, such a smart girl.
0: Did you um make anything of the fact that the actress who played Perdita in the production we're talking about had an Irish accent? That's, I I think it was an Irish accent.
2: Yeah, something that is really interesting. I had forgotten yeah. that.
0: I didn't know if that was just a kind of coincidence of casting i mean she was eminently qualified to play that role she demonstrated that but i wonder if that was to her benefit that she didn't have she didn't have a british accent yes. either high or low yes. you know right. she was she was something from another she's out
2: she's outside yeah. of it all
0: yeah right right um i i want to go back just for a moment i hope I'm not turning this into a hobby horse about Um, Shakespeare's view of nature I think part of the reason that this play might be less often performed as it should be is because of this act Mm -hmm. this act is full of so I really do think that most people seeing this play would have been tracking with so much of what is happening in act four Um, they would have understood kind of what happens in a pastoral Mm -hmm we don't so much exactly. We, I think like maybe we have these notions, um, clearly we have some notions in the United States of a kind of natural world. Like the late sixties is, is an attempt to kind of go back to a sort of primitive, more glorified state. Right. Yeah. You know, like, like uh, I, I think, There's a different view that Americans have of nature, of course, than um, Shakespeare had. But I still think there's this sense of kind of like we can return to a more primitive state. Um, Things have gotten corrupt. Yes, you know the the bureaucratic state and um, has has gotten restrictive in a way that we need to escape. So I don't think that American culture is absent any sort of pastoral sense, but it's not a sophisticated sense of the pastoral, like in Shakespeare's day.
2: Can I put a caveat on that? Because I do think that there is something very different in Americans' conceptions of nature, even even when it's, um, you know, uh, maybe more environmentally turned. And I think you can see it with John Muir and actually something that he's been really criticized for. John Muir is the great American naturalist who preserves Yosemite. But nature for Americans exists outside of us. We look in yes. onto nature, yes, right? Which is a different, right. like underlying a different sense than what Shakespeare is showing here. And it's a different totally. sense because we are outside of it. And I think, I do, yeah.
0: I, I think there's a sense, and I don't think this is true of all environmentalists, but there is a sense of kind of that branch of environmentalism that humans are an invasive species.
2: Exactly. And so we, we preserve, we preserve this natural world, which, you know, Yosemite wasn't a natural world. Like the native Americans had been managing that land for centuries before, but John Muir puts on it, no, we're going to keep it in this state. Right. So it's even that, which is, um, uh, beneficent to nature or wanting to preserve it is still a different view than Shakespeare's expanding here
0: view. right there's a sense that um human nature and kind of like the natural world are in league together mm-hmm. and together when functioning well together lead to the flourishing of both
2: exactly yeah, but we're not we're separate in, from it
0: we're not separate from it that's right and it's not separate and it's not separate from us
2: mm-hmm.
0: Just one little comment, kind of, we were, we're just talking right now about contemporary American culture. I'm going to want to go back to the era right after Shakespeare, the enlightenment comes along after the Renaissance and the reformation and the vision of nature during the enlightenment. For me, this is my telling of that story. Like what happens to this robust sense of nature? Well, two things happen. The Enlightenment takes nature and says, "What is nature? Nature is that which is in accordance with the dictates of reason."
2: Exactly, and And something that I can act upon.
0: Yes, that's right. Right?
2: I act upon it. It
0: it isolates
2: exactly um,
0: reason to kind of like our instrumental will.
2: Exactly, so we can instrumentalize nature, which I don't think Shakespeare is saying. He no, is not saying no, that. but it's
0: so tempting if you only know. Yeah, it's it's it, it's hard to understand Shakespeare because so much has happened with this concept of nature. There have been so many kind of accretions upon it, yeah, that it's really hard to understand. Like, what exactly does he believe about this? Hopefully, this podcast has addressed it in some way. Okay, so <laughs> after the Enlightenment guys, or right during the Enlightenment, guys, Rousseau comes along and he's like, Wait, nature is the dictates of reason. No, Mm no, 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 no. Nature Mm -hmm. is the dictates of feeling. So what I am feeling, that is natural. And in a strange way, I think we're much more, I would say, ethically heirs of Rousseau than we are heirs of the Enlightenment's vision of kind of like instrumental reason as nature. Boy,
2: I think we we share them equally, I think we share that. I think equally. with regards to
0: certain <laughs> things, like we are so, so hyper rational in some areas, you know, yes. like our well, in terms of how we, it?
2: in terms of how we work on the world around us, I think we're instrumentalizing to a large degree. In terms of how yeah. we view ourselves, I think we're Rousseauian.
0: Yes, that's th- right. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think. um, you could almost tell the story of Western civilization. This is not an exaggeration um, of the kind of, um, I'm not gonna say, yeah, I'll say like, the non-Christian elements of Western civilization, you could almost tell the whole story just based on the kind of varying visions of what is nature.
2: I think that that is so true. I read an amazing book, which I will recommend called Landscape and Memory by this historian, Simon Shama. And he goes through the history of it goes back to ancient times, the history of people's relationship with landscape and um, how that has changed and how it's been seen differently through Mm. human history. And it's quite remarkable. And I I think you're right on that. But I think we miss contemporaries miss so much of act Four because of a lack of understanding this. Agreed. Really, Shakespeare, when we, when you we said earlier, God is good and nature participates in that goodness, that is yeah. so foundational, right? That is so foundational. Yeah. The goodness of creation as an emanation from the creator is so underneath that because it puts humans yeah. within it, not standing outside of it, which is what the Enlightenment and Rousseau do, right? The, yeah. You stand outside of it. And so even John Muir, this great naturalist, is still a part of that other tradition. Mm -hmm. He doesn't see human beings as being embedded within the natural world.
0: Yeah. I'll speak as um, someone who's raised in the Protestant tradition. I admire that Catholics have a much more robust sense of the kind of like um, confluence of God and nature Mm -hmm. as kind of like How do we say it? Like, like, like the beginning of that quote said, yes, nature is an instrument of God. Yes. You know, led to natural law,
2: natural law ideas, those sorts of things
0: to paint with an overly broad brush. I think Protestants tend to view, um, there tends to be a kind of hostility toward not the natural world, but kind of like toward the world, you know, like what is the stance toward the world? It's Yeah. And I think I think the Catholic tradition has a much stronger sense of like, well, no, there are occasions in which we would recognize that like, um, the world has become frustrated and demented in some ways, and we stand opposed to it. But but there lies an underlying
2: goodness, the deep down freshness, things of Hopkins, right? Yeah, it it cannot be spent. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my work in landscapes is hitting right at this. I bet it is. It's hitting right at this. So there's an over-reliance on us as like subduing nature, right? It's not the world of the pastoral of like working in harmony and the earth giving of itself. It's subduing. It's the gardens of Versailles. But if we reclaim this more integrated view of nature, there is a a harmony in working with natural processes, right? Not imposing Mm -hmm. what we see you know what? I'm going to agree with (laughs) Polixenes. I'm going to agree with Polixenes. I thought
0: you were, before we got on the air, I thought that you were going to agree with Polixenes. I do agree with Polixenes. Okay. That's a relief. That's a relief. (laughs) Um, Emily, let's look forward to act five. I will tell you the two things that we're looking forward to are what is going to happen with Leontes? He's 16 years on. He's been living kind of in isolation and repentance for everything that he did to his wife and his children. Are we going to get a follow-up with him? Mm-hmm. Question mark. That's the first big question. And the second big question I think is Florizel and Perdita. Yeah. What kind of future do we have, do we have? after Polixenes steps in and ruptures them? Mm-hmm. And likewise, the shepherd is going to be dragged to the court also.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and this... too, by means and of Italicus. Italicus too, Right, <laughs> right.
0: So what is going to happen to these characters when Polixenes is in a state of rage? Those are, I think, our two biggest plot questions. Anything else that we should be looking forward to in Act 5?
2: I have been thinking more and more about this. Um, I think we can think, and we didn't hit on it this time, but we can think about the um, myth of Persephone because I think it plays a little bit. I think that there's a um, an analog there. You know, the myth of Persephone. So, I,
0: I do, but it's been so long.
2: Well, Persephone is the daughter of Demeter, the god goddess of the harvest. And she... Goes to the underworld and she is told, do not eat anything in the underworld. But of course, she eats pomegranate Mm -hmm. seeds Mm -hmm. from the god of the underworld. Right. And um, Demeter is so unhappy about this that she um, sets the world to death. So everything dies and nothing is coming back to life. And the gods are so worried because all humans will perish because there's no food. And Mm. so Persephone is brought back and an agreement is made that for six months of the year, it will be spring and and summer flourishing. And then for six months of the year, when she's with her mother Demeter, and then for six months of the year, she will go down to Hades to the land of the dead to be with her husband. Um, And it
0: seems like that curse has stuck
2: yeah so we're it's playing
0: out i mean like i'm I'm trying to make a joke about the seasons
2: oh yeah there you go (laughs) it's the end of winter here right yeah but for the winter's tale we see everything in death yes and now we've moved to the pastoral the spring the world of ever refreshing vigor and um how might you can just you can think about the myth of persephone don't you do you see what would you see where i'm going Yeah, i do yeah don't you don't you think it's applicable here
0: oh yeah But we don't know for sure before Act (laughs) 5. Right? We don't know for sure before Act 5. Hey, I want to just give a little shout out to the organization that platforms this show, the Circe Institute. Uh, If you would like to know anything more about the Circe Institute, go to c i r c e circeinstitute.org. The Circe Institute is one of the real key leaders in the resurgence of classical, classical Christian education. If you would like to know anything more, please check out their website. Um, I also want to thank um, Emily. We've just had really, we have really great listeners. I know that's a platitude that you're supposed to say, but I don't mean it as a platitude. I mean, it as a genuine heartfelt thanks. Um, We've had people reaching out to us on Facebook and just, you know saying how much they love the show and it's really it's wonderful to hear it it's is. really wonderful to thanks hear thanks for listening yeah yeah we really appreciate it and there's something also really invigorating knowing that your audience is um capable and invested in what you're putting out there it's absolutely just really, it's exciting for us so That's going to be it for us, Emily, until Act 5. It's almost over.
2: I'm so sad. I
0: know. We're going to try to do something a little bit special for the Q&A, but I'm going to hold on to that. We're not, we are not ready to reveal that yet, but we will during Act 5 let you know what our traditional Q&A is going to be like. It might be a little bit untraditional, a little bit Bohemia style.
1: We'll see.
0: Um, until then, I want to thank everyone for listening. And as always, wish you happy reading.
2: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.